0: Joshua chapter 23 is where we find ourselves today, and we're getting near the end. Just one more chapter after this in the book of Joshua. And the text that we have before us today is very, very important, because we're getting in this text not only the perspective, but the final well-thought-out words of a well-seasoned warrior for God. This is Joshua's farewell address before us. And those eyes of Joshua as he stands to address the nation of Israel in this text have seen so much. He's seen the sin of Kadesh Barnea because of a lack of faith as the people of God not entering into the promised land when they should have. He saw the subsequent wandering in the wilderness as God judged them for their lack of faith. And he saw the death that came from disobedience. And then he saw God's redemptive plan unfold as God brought them. To the Jordan River and God pushed the waters back some 20 miles north and the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground that day. And he's seen them go into the land and begin to take it city by city, region by region, king by king. He saw with his own eyes the walls of Jericho come tumbling down at the trump of God and the shout of the people. He's seen seven years of warfare. He's seen God distribute the land equitably and wonderfully amongst the tribes of Israel. And now he stands before them, 110 years old, at the end of his days. And the words that we have before us in a couple verses are the well-chosen words of a well-seasoned warrior of God. And there's much to be learned for you and I. The story unfolds starting in verse 1 of Joshua 23. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years. The Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you, See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then. To keep and to do all that is written in this book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, in order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you, And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts a flight to, puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this momentous occasion, this historic moment represented in the text today where the nation of Israel is standing on the cusp of a brand new thing, a fresh season. Knowing that you've done so many incredible things, having seen your faithfulness and hopeful for so much more. And Lord, there's a lot that lay ahead of them at this juncture. But the word to them is very clear. They are to love you. You've clearly demonstrated your love for them. And now they're just just to love you, Lord. And the word is the same to our church today. God, you've demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, you gave Christ Jesus to die for us. And you've asked for a degree of reciprocity. The first and greatest commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, we say together today as a church that we want to, but we often fail to. And we ask that you would help us, Lord. Help us to love you more. Help us to know you more. Lord, would you tune our ears to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit corporately and individually when you would be saying to us, Holy Spirit, come away, my beloved. When you'd be calling us into that secret place with our King where we might commune in intimacy and enjoy our God and all the benefits of our salvation. Lord, we don't want to miss out on these things. Many of us stand on the cusp of a new thing, a fresh season. We want it to be all that you ordained it to be. And so Holy Spirit, come instruct us in the Word of God now. I submit my thoughts and my mouth to you. I ask that every syllable that comes from these lips will be directly from your throne, God, and they'd be useful for the building up of your people and the tearing down of strongholds in the glory of Jesus Christ. Bless this time. Do a deep and wonderful work in us. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, here in verse 3, when Joshua starts talking to them, he's reminding them of God's goodness. He says to them, you have seen firsthand what God has done. Verse 3, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done. How he's driven out these nations from before you, for the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. And so he just reminds them that they've seen and he wants to stir them up by way of reminder about what the Lord has done. Now, this is important for you and I because we're called to stir one another up. The book of Hebrews says that we're to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. And so we're to build each other up in the most holy faith. And there's going to be times where your brothers and sisters in the faith, those around you are going to be downtrodden, discouraged upset, heartbroken in some way. And it's the job of other believers to come alongside them at that time and encourage them, to lift them up, to speak the word of God to them, to remind them of the faithfulness of God. Like Peter the apostle said in writing one of his epistles to the churches in Asia Minor, he said, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And so Joshua, as a good leader here, as a man of God, is reminding the nation that God has been absolutely faithful to them. Now, you are called a steward of God's grace if you're a Christian. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of God's grace in its various form. You know what a steward is? A steward is someone who's in charge of dispersing resources. The resources are that of the king, namely the grace of God. But we've been given oversight with distributing grace amongst God's people. And you are gifted to do so. And the way that you experience the gifting and distribute the grace is by serving one another. Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another. And so it's good that you develop and cultivate a heart of compassion, For your brothers and sisters around you that when you see that they're hurting when they're confused when they're perhaps taunted by the enemy or even tormented by the enemy or just giving into the silliness of the flesh you can come along and begin to serve them by speaking the word of grace into their lives by stirring them up with reminder about what the lord has done in their lives wait a minute remember when the lord delivered you from alcohol Remember when the Lord delivered you from drugs. Remember when the Lord delivered you from sexual immorality. Remember when you were sick and we prayed and the Lord healed you. Remember the good things that the Lord has done in your life. Now, inevitably, the person who has gotten sort of depressed and downcast, they will often lose perspective. And they'll say, yeah, 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 the Lord did those things. But what about these things? What about where I'm hurting now and the Lord hasn't healed me? What about the lack of provision now? What about these difficulties now? And you might say to them what the psalmist says in Psalm 27, verse 13. The psalmist said, I would have despaired. He said that. He said, times are difficult for me. Times are tough. And I would freak out. I would flip out. I would be bummed out. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Let your heart hope in Him. Wait for the Lord, said the psalmist. The psalmist said, yeah, sometimes in this lifetime, we might have every reason to despair, humanly speaking. But let's not forget who our God is in those moments. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Surely the Lord is good to Israel, the psalmist declared. He is good. That's who he is in his nature. And he is a love and kind and caring father. And he wants to work good things in your life. And it's important that in the difficult days, we keep our gaze fixed on the person of Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's important that we don't lose perspective and get our eyes on the circumstances and the difficulties. When we do that, we get that sinking feeling like Peter had on the Sea of Galilee. But when you feel like you're sinking, you could always cry out, Lord, help me, like Peter did that night on the Sea of Galilee. And the Lord reached down and the Lord lifted him above his circumstances. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength and mount up the wings of eagles. He lifted him above the circumstances. And did not the Lord speak to the wind and the waves and say, be still? And they were still. And Jesus Christ walked on the very difficulty that once threatened their lives. He's so good, you see. He's so faithful, and we gotta remind each other of those things. When hearts are broken and heads are hung low, and days are difficult, and people despair and are discouraged and begin to lose hope. Our Jesus is a faithful God. We need to remind each other of those things. And Joshua is reminding the whole nation. And then he reminds them at the end there, verse three, he says, It's the Lord who's been fighting for you. He wants them to remember that the victories they've experienced are not their own. Amen. But it is the Lord who has been fighting for them. Now, you have a choice in life. You can either fight your own battles, or you can let Jesus fight them for you. You can fight your own battles, or you can let Jesus fight them for you. Jesus loves you. He wants to fight your battles. But when He fights your battles, He will not exclude you from the process. Amen? Amen? Because God has chosen to work through people, not independent of people. He's invited us into relationship, into partnership. And if you will engage in partnership with Jesus Christ, He will certainly fight your battles and use you all the while. And you'll experience great and wonderful victories. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? Take heart in that. The weight of the battle always depends upon Him. The battle belongs to the Lord. Some boast in horses and chariots, but not us. We will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Son, depend upon those things, but not us. Our battle belongs to the Lord. And did not our Lord say upon the cross, Tetelestai? Didn't he say it is finished? Didn't he disarm that old devil on the cross? Isn't he a defeated foe? Isn't our Jesus a victorious king? Then let the Lord fight your battles. What does that mean practically, you say, though? That means daily surrendering to him. Daily choosing not to fight the battles on your own behalf. Daily surrendering to him. Oh, it's easy in the big things. It's easy when your world seems to be falling apart. and We often turn to the Lord then. But where the rubber meets the road, where faith is really made alive, is in the minutia of life. in the small things, daily surrendering unto the Lord. Lord, this is your deal. Lord, it's not my life. My life is no longer my own, but the life I live, I live by faith unto you. Letting Jesus have his perfect work in you daily. Daily surrendering to him. Oh yeah, he's your savior, but is he your Lord? For so many, he's just fire insurance, you see? But he wants to be Lord Jesus Christ. The profession and the confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord. That was a confession that shook the world. They didn't go around saying Jesus is savior. Oh, but he was. But the confession that shook the world was Jesus is Lord. That's the confession that shook the world is that Jesus Christ was the king in this world and in the world to come. Jesus Christ is king, but is he king of your life? You say, yes, he is, but really. He's only king of your life if he's king of the minutia of your life, of your days and of your nights and of your little things. Daily surrender to him, daily letting go. Not taking the situations or the instances or the difficulties into your own hands. You know, when we do that, we make such a mess. You know that, you don't you? When we do that, we make such a mess. And, and we often lean upon our own understanding. But the Word of God has already told you and I not to lean upon our own understanding. But in all our ways, acknowledge the Lord. And He'll make our path straight. We make such a mess when we take things into our own hands. And some of you have had things in your hands for 20 years. It's a whole world a mess. It's not too big for Jesus to fix. Repentance is the key to doing about-face, to release that thing to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, to ask him about it. There's two choices in life. You can fight your own battles, or you can let Jesus fight them for you. And the latter is much more victorious. Amen? Now, in verse 5, Joshua reminds them that the Lord is going to be faithful to his previous promises. Verse 5, he says, and the Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. And you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. The Lord had previously made a promise. Now, they weren't seeing all of it yet. They were seeing some stuff, but they weren't seeing the fullness yet. You see, the fullness was going to require faith on their part. And faith is hope in things not yet seen. It was going to require faith. All the enemy was not out of the land yet. They had broken the power structure in the land. But there were some victories that were yet to be held, some possessions that were yet to lay hold of. And he's simply telling them, God's going to complete the work that he's begun in you. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, God is faithful to complete the work that he's begun you and I until the day of Christ Jesus. He's faithful. He's not going to abandon. He's not going to quit halfway through. One of the things that bugs me most in the world is people that just cheese out partway. Our God is not like that. He finishes strong. He finishes well. And he's going to finish your faith. He's the author and the finisher of it. And so he's reminding them of that fact that God has been good, that God has fought their battles, that they've seen it with their own eyes, and that he's going to be faithful to his previous promises. And then he tells them how they ought to respond to such a great and glorious God. Verses 6 through 8. He says, in response, be very firm then. TO KEEP AND DO ALL THAT IS WRITTEN IN THE BOOK OF THE LAW OF MOSES, SO THAT YOU MAY NOT TURN ASIDE FROM IT TO THE RIGHT HAND OR TO THE LEFT, IN ORDER THAT YOU MAY NOT ASSOCIATE WITH THESE NATIONS, THESE WHICH REMAIN AMONG YOU, OR MENTION THE NAMES OF THEIR GODS, OR MAKE ANYONE SWEAR BY THEM, OR SERVE THEM, OR BOW DOWN TO THEM. BUT YOU ARE TO CLING TO THE LORD YOUR GOD, AS YOU HAVE DONE TO THIS DAY." There's three things that he tells Israel they ought to do in response to God's goodness and faithfulness and the fact that he fights their battles. Number one, they ought to be very firm, he says in verse 6, in keeping and doing the word. They ought to be very firm in keeping and doing the word. You know, Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship. God has called us into relationship. And God is going to do great and wonderful things in our lives. And the way that we respond is to be very careful to obey him. Don't misunderstand that. Not because he's engaged us in performance-oriented religion. He has not. It's not as though when we perform well as Christians, God loves us more. And when we blow it, God loves us less. That's a theological impossibility. He loves you with a perfect love. He loves you with a perfect, unending love. He cannot love you more or less. He loves you with a perfect love. And while we were yet sinners, he gave Christ Jesus to die for us, Romans 5.8 says. So that theologically destroys the concept that there's any merit in us or any need to perform. No, we're free from that. Thank you, God. Jesus Christ performed wonderfully upon the cross because we cannot. But the reason it's important to obey him now as a response to his goodness is because it puts us in the place of blessing. Very practically speaking now, it just puts us in the place of blessing. And God wants to bless you. Guess what? God wants to bless you more than you're willing to be blessed. How do I know that? Because we're sick religious people. And we're often self-deprecating And we have this idea that I've somehow got to suffer. It's innate and fallen humanity. You see what Jesus Christ suffered for us upon the cross. And so now God has for us blessings untold of. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. The things that God has prepared for those who are wholly committed to him. And what obedience does is it puts us in the place of blessing. What rebellion does is remove us from the place of blessing. We have a rule in our house. Nobody eats upon the couch. For some reason, and I trust her wisdom, my wife has chosen that we have a white couch in our house. (laughs) So nobody eats upon the couch. And I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. That's just as messy as it gets. And my son, he's real fond of snacking on the couch. Now, we pretty much have broken him of this, but in his earlier years, you know, he'd get a little snack. And, you know, I'm pretty much a pushover as a dad. And you have something like pretzels. And, Dad, can I just eat the pretzels over on the couch? "Uh, Okay. So he's over on the couch, and he's snacking on pretzels. He knows he shouldn't be. And his mom, my wife, she's a glorious cook. She's a wonderful cook. She's a real good cook. And my wife makes these great dinners, you know what I mean? And they're nourishing. She's very healthy. She's very into health. It's like organic and all this stuff. Very healthy stuff, but it tastes good. It's amazing, really. And she makes these dinners. And they're nourishing, and they're tasty, and they're wonderful. And she says to my son, Isaiah, get off the couch and come eat. Come sit down at the table. And you know, when kids are young, for some reason, it's hard to get them to sit down at the table. Me as a man, you know when you're old, you come home and first thing you want to do is sit down at the dinner table. I don't know what happens when you you want to come in, you want to take your shirt off, and you want to sit there in your boxers and just eat your dinner. That's what happens when you're old. It's weird when you get old. You just want to sit down there and just eat. You just I go right to the table every time. But the kids, it's hard to get them to the table. But there's nourishment at the table. There's a banqueting table set before them. There's good things at the table. But my son so often persists in snacking upon the couch. And I say, son, get off the couch and come to the table. There's goodness at the table, but he likes it at the couch. Son, come and eat at the table what your mother has prepared for you. There's nourishment and good things here. And he persists in his rebellion at the couch. Now, that's so much like you and I. Settling for little snacks of God's goodness. When our Lord has prepared for us a banqueting table in the presence of thine enemies. And the Holy Spirit of God beckons us and says, come sit at the banqueting table. Come seat yourself at the table of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But unless we get off the couch, that place of compromise and comfort and even rebellion, and come to the table where God wants us to be, we never experience the fullness of those blessings. And so many remain on the couch and refuse to come to the table. And God wants us to obey, not because he needs us to perform, but because in his Father's heart, he tremendously desires to bless you and I. And obedience, practically speaking, puts us in the place of blessing. And so Joshua, as a loving old man, says to a younger nation, be very firm to observe and do all that is written in the word. Let our obedience be characterized by resolve and determination, not compromise and whatever's. Let us be like Daniel in Daniel chapter one, who purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's dainty morsels. He already decided in his heart before confronted with the situation, I don't do that. That's wisdom for living today for the Christian. To read the word of God and as we read it, let it read us. And then purpose in our hearts to say, next time I'm in that situation, I'm deciding right now, I won't do that. I'm going to be very careful to obey the word. And the word of God from Genesis to Revelation promises blessings for obedience. We're reading the Bible through in a year together as a church. And right now we're in Psalm 119, just as juicy as the word of God gets in Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 verse two says, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies and who seek him with all their heart. Why don't you just go ahead and try God in this area? Why don't you go ahead and see where you need to repent? Because there's some areas. Why don't you go ahead, see where you need to repent, repent from that, do an about-face, get where God wants you to be, and see if it's not a blessed place. The promise of the scripture is God always blesses obedience. Now, after telling them to be very firm, to obey and to keep the word, the second thing he tells them to do is to be very loose in their grip on and connections with the world around them. Verse 7. In order that you may not associate with these nations these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them he continues the thought in verse 12. for if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. But they shall be a snare, listen to that, they shall be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now God wanted there to be a separation and a distinction between his people and the world around them. And he said, when you fail in maintaining this distinction, it will be like a thorn in your side. It'll be a snare and a trap to you. Rather, he said, a thorn in your eyes, even worse, and a whip on your sides. And as Christians, we are called to be in the world for sure. You got to be in the world because you're not dead yet. You don't really have a choice. Because you're alive, it means God has a purpose for you. When He's done with you and your purpose, He'll kill you and take you to heaven. Until then, He still has a purpose for you on this earth. And that purpose is to be salt and light. To be separate and distinct from the world around us, which is Antichrist, against Jesus Christ, and going increasingly in that direction. There is to be a distinction. And yet we are to be in the world. But did not our Lord teach in John 17, we're not to be of the world. Now, there's a tricky concept. In the world, but not of the world. It's not tricky. It's very simple. It's like a boat. If you have a boat, you want the boat in the water, but you don't want the water in the boat. When the boat is in the water, it's useful and good and wonderful. But when the water is in the boat, esta no bien, esta feo, esta muy, como se dice, no good you don't want the water in the boat we want to be in the world we want to have friendships with non-believers we want to represent jesus christ to them we want to be in the secular workplace we want to be on the secular campuses we want to be involved in city councils and in local and federal national government we want to be involved in these things but we don't want these things involved in us we're in the world but not of the world a simple concept. Difficult to maintain in your daily living. James the Apostle said this, this is pure and undefiled religion, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress and that you keep yourself unstained from the world. Keep yourself unstained by the world. Unstained. In it, not of it. Leaving our mark on it, but not letting it leave its mark on us. And so God told the people of Israel, don't get overly involved with these nations around you. Why? Because you'll begin to follow after their gods. That's just the way we are. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, right? Bible says that. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. But even he allowed himself one by one to get overly involved with the surrounding nations and it meant his demise. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 11. Keep your finger on Joshua, we'll be back in a few minutes. But go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, "Now King Solomon loved many foreign women." along with the daughter of Pharaoh. He loved Moabites, he loved Amorites, Edomites, Sidians, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. There's a reasoning. But Solomon held fast to these in love. That word held fast is the same Hebrew word, davak, which is translated cling in Joshua chapter 23, where it says you are to cling to the Lord your God. He, instead of clinging to the Lord, began to cling to these foreign women. He held fast to them, verse three. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That's never good. (laughs) And his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the city and and those people. And after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Amorites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. Solomon didn't finish well. He started wonderfully. The Lord came to him when he was becoming king and said, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon said, Lord, I'm just a little guy. I don't know how to go in or come out. I'm very young. Uh, who can lead a people such as yours? I want wisdom. And the Lord gave him wisdom. The Lord was so pleased with him that he asked for wisdom, that he gave him all sorts of other stuff, including that wisdom. But even the wisest man on earth had a great fall because he neglected one area, the Word of God. Don't intermarry with, don't over-associate with those nations around you. Now Solomon should have known. Because those nations mentioned there are those very Canaanite nations that were surrounding God's people in the land. The Sidians way up to the northwest in what is modern Lebanon. The Edomites down to the southwest, to the, uh, to the southeast, excuse me, to the east side of the Dead Sea. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites there. The Hittites right there in the middle of the Atlantic. Lord, the Lord had warned them about these very ones and yet he chose to compromise. Now, he didn't all of a sudden in one day have seven foreign wives and 300 concubines. But one by one, small compromise by small compromise. And you know, that's the way Satan likes to work it in our lives. He knows that we're not going to bite upon the whole package. We're God's people. We're not going to fall for the whole package. And so he doesn't try to sell you the whole package. He parcels it out to you. Little piece by little piece. Small compromise after small compromise. And one in and of itself, it seems rather innocuous. It seems superfluous. No big deal. But when you add to it another one and another and another and another and another, the danger grows exponentially. And Solomon, though he was the wisest man in the world, his heart was not fully the Lord's because of the foreign influence he allowed in. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.33 in the New Testament says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't fool yourself. The world has a tremendous detrimental effect upon the well-being of the Christian when overly engaged with. In the world, absolutely. But not the world in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, do not be yoked together with non-believers, unnecessarily tied together with non-believers in deep relationship, a plowing of life sort of relationship. Don't be yoked or bound together with unbelievers. Why? Well, you have a different God. You're going to eventually go in different directions because there's only one true God. And every other demon impersonating God's going to want you to go in a different direction. And so we're not to tie ourselves too tightly to those who reject Jesus Christ. That makes all the sense in the world. That imagery being yoked together comes from uh, an agrarian culture where they would need to plow the land, break up the hard soil. And so they would yoke together two beasts of burden and they'd take a wooden yoke, and it would go over the necks and under the necks, and it would tie these animals together for the purpose of plowing a straight line. Now, the animals had to be of about equal size and strength for them to effectively plow together and make a straight line that is profitable for the farmer. If one was much weaker than the other, they couldn't plow together. Don't yoke together those oxen. This one is too weak. This one is strong. They won't be able to make a straight line. Now, you would think intuitively that the stronger ox would have the greater influence, but it wasn't so in farming. When the two animals were unequally yoked, the smaller one would have the greatest influence because he would falter and he would slip, and he would exhaust, and he would give out. And what he would do is drag the stronger ox down. We like to think as Christians that we're going to have the greater influence when we overly attach to, glue ourselves to, cling with the world around us. We would like to think that, and so it should be. But 1 Corinthians 15.33, it's counterintuitive, but it's word God, God's word. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And what we know historically speaking is that the weaker oxen representing the non-Christian who's been yoked together with a person that has eternal life would so encumber, would so hinder, would so impede the work of, would so trip up and drag down that larger ox as it fought and struggled, often the, the neck of the larger ox would be broken. And so farmers learn to say, do not unequally yoke two oxen together. It's detrimental to the stronger one. And so the word of God says to you and I, do not be unnecessarily bound together with unbelievers in life relationship. And when Solomon ignored that one little part of the word, though he was a great king and the wisest man in the world, it meant his demise. And because of those influences, little by little, day by day, his heart was not fully the Lord's. It was not fully the Lord's. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word pure means undivided. Blessed are the singular in heart, the undivided in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those whose hearts are fully the Lord. Does not Chronicles say that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, looking around to find someone whose heart is fully committed to him, that he may strongly support them? Blessed are those who are the pure of heart, undivided, for they shall see God. They're going to have a greater experience of the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know of a better thing in this life than experiencing more of God. And what will impede that is over-entangling ourselves with the influences of the world. And so instead of clinging to the world and those influences and holding fast to them as Solomon did, Joshua chapter 23 verse 8 says we are to cling to the Lord. He told them first, be very careful to obey the word. Secondly, have a loose grip on the world around you. Thirdly, cling to the Lord. And so I ask you guys right now, what is it that you're clinging to in this lifetime? The word means to glue yourself to, to join yourself to. It's used in Genesis 2.24 to speak of marriage. And the husband shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Glue himself to his wife. What are you glued to right now? What are you purposefully gluing yourself to? The word of God says in response to who God is, that we should cling to him that we should cling to the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at a king who did it right in contrast to Solomon. Go to Second Kings now, chapter 18. Second Kings chapter 18. Here we have King Hezekiah, sometime after Solomon. And he did it right. Hezekiah, his name means strengthened by Yah, strengthened by God. Hezak being the Hebrew word for strength. Yah being one of the Hebrew names for God. Hezekiah, strengthened by God. Verse 1 of 2 Kings 18. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Yisrael, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. HE ALSO BROKE IN PIECES THE BRONZE SERPENT THAT MOSES HAD MADE, FOR UNTIL THOSE DAYS THE SONS OF Israel BURNED INCENSE TO IT, AND IT WAS CALLED NEHUSHTAN. VERSE 5, HE TRUSTED IN THE LORD, THE GOD OF ISRAEL, SO THAT AFTER HIM THERE WAS NONE LIKE HIM AMONG ALL THE KINGS OF JUDAH, NOR AMONG THOSE WHO WERE BEFORE HIM. FOR HE CLUNG, THERE'S THAT WORD AGAIN, Davak IN HEBREW, FOR HE CLUNG, GLUED HIMSELF TO THE LORD. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now here we have a good example. Solomon didn't finish well. He had a great start, but he finished poorly because of the detrimental, incremental day-by-day influence. But Hezekiah, Hezekiah, strengthened by God, he finished well. The difference was Solomon held fast to the things of the world. Hezekiah held fast to the Lord. What are you holding fast to today? What are you clinging to today? Only you know in your heart of hearts as illumined by the Spirit of God. But are you clinging to the person of Jesus Christ? Is he your heart's desire? Are you pursuing hard after him? I don't mean in the difficult times where we cry out to the Lord. Everybody does that. That's called foxhole religion. Everybody cries upon God in the impact zone. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the cry of your heart when you're on your bed at night. Is it Jesus? Oh, it ought to be. It can be. Just fasten yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and the practical outflow of that was that he tore down the sacred pillars. He tore down the high places. Those things that were false, he tore them down. Those lies of the enemy that we so often entertain and allow to grow in our lives, he tore down. He tore down those things, and he clung to the Lord, and he had a wonderful finish, Hezekiah. I want to show you one other awesome man of God in 2 Samuel. Go to Second Samuel. Now, the book of Samuel is before Kings, so go back a little bit toward Joshua. Second Samuel twenty-three. Second Samuel twenty-three. We'll start reading verse eight. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had: Joab, Abishai, a ooh, that guy, chief of the captains, and he was called Adino the Esnite, a little easier there, because of 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo, the Ahahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He, that is Eleazar, the son of Dodo, arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. There's that Hebrew word again. Dabak in the Hebrew. Davak, excuse me. He clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him to strip the slain. Now here we have Eleazar. And Eleazar was one of the mighty men of David. And David and Eleazar and one other were engaged in the fight of their lives. The Philistines came against them and the rest of Israel fled. Nobody stood with them. The Philistines were before them. And it was just these three taking a stand for righteousness. Everybody else said, it's too hard, it's too difficult. And they compromised and they cheesed out and they ran away. But Eleazar stood his ground. And the battle was so great, just the three of them defying the Philistines that he became weary. And what did he do when he was weary? His hand clung to the sword. It's as though his hand was glued to the sword. And in that, there was a great victory. Now we have a sword to which we ought to cling. Ephesians six seventeen says that we have the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And when we get weary in the midst of the battle, people, we ought to cling to it. Our hand ought to be glued to it in the difficult times because it's here where we find nourishment for our souls. Amen? It's here when we encounter the person in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. He is the bread of life. And when we get weary when battling against the Philistines and when nobody will stand with us, all of the rest of Israel fled and it's us against a thousand, we cling to the word of God. The Word of God is a rock upon which we could build our house, and when the storms come, that foundation will not be shaken. And what we see about this man is he fought hard against the enemy. So often we just quit too soon. We just stop short. We, we just give up too easily. We, we are engaged in a battle. There's no doubt about it. Ephesians 6 says, We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. We are engaged in a battle for the souls of men and women. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be dirty it's going to be difficult jesus never told you he'd give you an easy life don't say he did he never did he said in this world you will have trouble but take heart i've overcome the world he's overcome the world we're engaged in a battle but we don't have to fight for victory because we fight from victory did not our lord say to tell us it is finished upon the cross didn't he disarm and defeat the devil isn't the devil a defeated foe Listen to me. He may be a squatter, but he's no owner. He's a squatter at best, but he does not own. The owner is Jesus Christ. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Open up the gates and let the King of glory enter in. We are engaged in a battle. It's not going to be easy, but can't you be like Eleazar and just fight hard? And he got weary in the battle. It's going to be hard. We're going to get weary in the battle. What did he do? He clung to the sword cling to the Word of God. People, if you're not reading your Bibles every day by this point, I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing more I could tell you. It's probably time you change churches. I can't tell you anymore. You should go hear something else It's not working here. If you're not getting into the Word of God on a regular basis, if the Word of God is not getting into you, brothers, you're missing it. We've been given a sword to which we must cling. Read the Word of God. Let the Word of God read you. It'll change your world. Jesus Christ is absolutely faithful. Go back to Joshua 23 now. Joshua 23. Now the reason that he tells them to cling to the Lord is because the Lord is so faithful, verse 9. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you before before this day. He just reminds them that God has been faithful to his earlier promises, because in Joshua 1 verse 5, the Lord said, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Now at the end of the battles, at the end of the life, he's reminding them, wait a minute, God said to you years ago he would do this, and he's done it. Cling to the Lord because he's absolutely faithful. He says the same thing in verse 14. If you want to skip ahead for a moment. Verse 14 of Joshua 23. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, people, you just got to receive that by faith. God is never going to fail you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. It's impossible for him to do so. It's against his character. He will not fail you. He is absolutely faithful to his word. And here's the thing. When we cling to a faithful God like this, we're going to experience glorious things in our lives. Verse 10, one of your men puts to flight a thousand For the Lord your God, it is he who fights for you, just as he promised. When we cling to the Lord God, and we wait upon him, and we trust in his faithfulness, we're going to see great victories. I mean great victories. Great and glorious victories. In our corporate life, in our individual lives, for our family members, for our friends, for our communities, for our schools, great and glorious victories. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. we sing about it. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. And then he said there, one of your men puts a thousand to flight. Do you understand the authority that's been entrusted to you in the spiritual realm as a child of the Most High God? In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, The disciples were given authority over demons. In Mark chapter 6 verse 7, Jesus reiterated they, they had authority in the demonic realm and they went out cast, they went around casting out demons. We have been given authority in the spiritual realm. Did you know as a people of God that we can stand firm and resist the devil for our families, for our marriages, for our children, for our schools, for our community, for our school board, for our city council, for our Congress, for the White House, for the United Nations? Do you know that we can stand firm together and resist the devil and see the Lord do great and awesome things? He's done it all throughout history. He's going to not stop now. His eyes are going to and fro about the earth, looking for someone on whose behalf he may show himself faithful, someone whose heart is fully committed to him. One of you can put a thousand to flight. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love what David said when he was singing a song in 2 Samuel 22. He said, Lord, for by thee I can run upon a whole troop, By my God, I can leap over a whole wall. He makes my feet like hinds feet, and he sets me on my high places. He trains my hands for battle, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. For thou hast girded me with strength for battle. Thou hast subdued under me those who rose up against me. Therefore, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to thy name. There's a man who knew his God. There's a man who knew his God. He knew what he could do when he was clinging to his God. How do we respond to such a great and awesome God? Verse 11, take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. I really like this because it's an old man. He's 110 years old. He's seen a lot of things. He's at the end of his life. And you know, when people are at the end of their life, things often become crystal clear. All the things that didn't mean a hill of beans. It's real obvious at that point. And the things that are absolute most important become clear. And this man at the end of his life, giving his final words to a whole nation that he's faithfully led for almost a decade. He said, guys, in summation, I'll tell you, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Just love the Lord. It's the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just love the Lord your God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, the epistles say. Just love the Lord your God. Just be like John the apostle who is reclining upon the chest of Jesus in intimacy. Just be like Mary who came with her dowry, the alabaster vial of perfume, and just poured it out at the feet of Jesus, just loving the Lord, just giving her everything to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus did not bleed upon the cross so that we could be religious. He bled upon the cross that we might be intimate with our heavenly father. He's brought us into a relationship of intimacy. Just love the Lord your God. Now I have to say this to balance that. The thrust of scripture and the totality of the word of God has as its weight God's love for you and I. The Bible's not about our love for God. The Bible's all about God's love for us. But he has ordained a degree of reciprocity. He's demonstrated his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, he gave Christ Jesus to die for us. And what he asks is that we reciprocate, that we love him back. Someone came and said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God. Only you know in your heart if you're loving him. And the great thing is he makes it so easy to love him, doesn't he? Because he's so dang lovable. (laughs) There's nothing wrong about him. There's nothing bad about him. The Lord is so lovable. If you're having trouble loving the Lord, it's because you don't know him. Get to know him a little bit. I found him in the pages of scripture nowhere else. There he is. At the end of his life, he says, love the Lord. Now, we're going to read the last two verses, and they're sobering. But they're not for us. You'll see what I mean. Verse 15. And it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. Now, Joshua warns Israel, if you turn away from following God, God's gonna get mad and he's gonna judge you. And God did it. 722 BC did it with the Assyrians coming and conquering Israel. 605 BC and 586 BC with the Babylonians, 70 AD with the Romans. He was always faithful to bring them back into the land. That's why we see Israel in the land today is God's faithfulness to a covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of the land. And that covenant is still enforced by God. But we've been grafted into another covenant. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of the blood spoken of in Jeremiah 31. And this is a different covenant altogether because you see in this covenant, the fulfiller of the conditions is the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life because we could not. And then on the cross, Jesus Christ took all the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and the anger of God so that we would not. All the wrath and the judgment of God was poured upon the person of Jesus upon the cross. All of it. Didn't he stay to tell us to die? Didn't he say it is finished, paid in full? All of the wrath of God for you and I was dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus satisfied the righteous standard of God by the life that he lived. And he satisfied the wrath and judgment of God in the death that he died. Because we could not. And because of the work that Jesus did, your God is perfectly satisfied with you. Romans 3 says that Jesus was a propitiation. Big theological word. It means the sacrifice that satisfies. Jesus Christ is a sacrifice that satisfies the standard, the wrath, the judgment of God. And so theologically speaking now, it's impossible for God to have anger with the believer. It was dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our standing, Romans 5.1, is in grace. Grace unmerited, undeserved favor. It's almost hard to believe in our little brains, isn't it? But theologically speaking, God deals with us with grace. He is perfectly satisfied with you today, Christian. He is perfectly satisfied with you today, not because of you, Because of the person of Jesus Christ. And we're in him so God is satisfied. There's no disconnect in God's love. The only disconnect is that we're often not satisfied with him. And that's sin. Cling to the Lord your God with every fiber of your being. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and make application in our individual lives. And Lord, that you would help us. It's so clear how much you love us. It's so great, and awesome, and wonderful. And Lord, we want to love you. We do love you, Lord, but help our lack of love. We love you, Lord, but we're just aware of our frailty, and our fallenness, and our waywardness, our love of self, and our love of the things of the world. They're just obvious to us. Oh, Holy Spirit, come and make Jesus so glorious in our midst that the attractions of the world would fade away that the passing pleasures of sin would hold no power over us, no attraction. Jesus, be so magnified, so exalted in our midst, that the world fades away. We're sorry, Lord, that we just so complicate Christianity. so simple. You've loved us with a great and awesome love, and you're a great and awesome and faithful God. And we ought to love you. Help us, Lord. Draw us into your presence. Prayer team will be up here on your left if you need help. Carpets are here for you to get on your face before your God. And communion is here to celebrate Jesus.